We've been going verse by verse through this. And, and remember, our, our desire, our goal, as we study the book of Revelation, is to understand and see what the writer John is seeing. He's been given this incredible glimpse of what is to come. And, and, and so we're trying to understand the language he's using, the images, the pictures that he's using to describe what he's seeing. And oftentimes he's using Old Testament language because that's the language people understood and knew. Um, but where we pick up today, we've, we've seen that the, the tribulation with its judgments, its seal, its trumpets, its bull judgments, that all of those have ended. There's, uh, there's been many people that have come to know the Lord through this, uh, even with all the judgments happening. God has still uh, called people to himself and they've responded. Uh, we've seen that the Antichrist and the false prophet, they've been not only revealed, but they've been defeated. And what we looked at last week, they've been cast into the lake of fire. We've also seen uh, the evil political, social, and religious um, world system known as Babylon has been destroyed. And last week we saw that battle, or I should say lack of battle, uh, that Armageddon uh, as Jesus uh, destroys those forces of evil and he comes again to reign. And so we kick off in chapter 20, verse one, and it says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so... Let's, let's go into this, okay? And once again, as we unpack uh, the doctrine of the millennium, we need to understand that the doctrine of the millennium, it refers to a thousand year period of the reign of Christ. And it's mentioned only here in Revelation 20. And it has been the source of so much controversy throughout church history, okay? Um, and so what we're gonna try and do try uh, is, is one, um, encourage you to check out the podcast because we unpack these positions um, in a more thorough way. But the other thing I'm going to try and do is, is give you a high level view of each of these three major eschatological schools of thoughts. And eschatology is just the study, the theology of the end times, okay? And these three positions um, that, that are, are the main positions that people have. And if you're new or new to Christ or that, you're probably going to just look at me with your eyes wide. That's okay. Uh, but for others of you, this is, these are very, this, this is where you land uh, when it comes to what we just read. 
okay? Um, and the positions are amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Now, um, before we unpack each of these, we have people that probably land on all three of those in this room and watching online, just as we did at the first gathering. Okay, so the first thing I wanna highlight is, is the fact that um, there isn't just only one position. And if you don't align with that view, you are a sinner and you are awful and you're gonna be judged for it, right? Okay, so let's acknowledge that, all right? Although you believe you're right, right? Yeah, yeah I'm right, okay? So let me just unpack and hopefully it helps make sense and it isn't this long detour for us. So, so first let's just talk about amillennialism, okay? Now amillennialism is the uh, belief that when it comes to what we just read here in chapter 20, uh, it, the amillennial position, one, the word amillennial means no, millennium, no millennium, except they would say, hey, it's an integrated millennium. In other words, the millennium, they would say, started when Christ, after he resurrected from the dead and went to heaven, it kicked off the millennial period. And so if you're an amillennialist in the room, and once again, don't be mad at me, I'm not gonna do it complete service, okay? But you, you believe that uh, the reign of Christ during the millennium is from heaven. It's not a physical present Jesus reigning uh, with believers. It is a heavenly perspective. And, and the believers that reign with Christ during the millennium, that is in heaven, okay? Um, and, and, and so that position would state that right now we're in the millennium and Christ is reigning. Satan has been bound right now, which is why the gospel is able to go forth and people are able to receive it and respond. And a millennial position would also say that the church has essentially taken over the promises that were promised to Israel. Okay, so this is, a, this is important, all right? And then the other thing is, it would, uh, that position would say that it's not a literal thousand years, but when it describes a thousand years, it's talking about just a long overall period of time. And this position then it ends, it, it hits its final point with Christ coming back, dealing with evil, and then entering into the new heavens and new earth. A post-millennial position would align a lot with the uh, chronology of that. In other words, they would uh, say that Christ comes back at the end of the millennium, um, but where the differences would be, and they would also say it's not a literal thousand years, where the differences would be uh, is a, a post-millennial view would, would say that the earth, that, that the population, uh, that culture is actually going to go through this incredible revival. They call it the golden age, uh, a time when uh, Christianity is gonna sweep across the world uh, landscape, the cultures all throughout the world and many people are gonna receive him. And so everything's gonna get better before Christ comes back. You hanging still? I pray so. So that's two positions. Okay, last is a premillennial uh, position. And the premillennial position uh, would, would state, and within that, there's a couple variations, but a premillennial position overall would take chapter 19 that we just read, looked at last week, 
and go into the chapter today, chapter 20, and say that this is what's next chronologically, okay? So this position would take the most literal and chronological approach to chapter 19 into chapter 20, okay? So uh, in other words, a premillennial position would state uh, that, that here Christ comes back to initiate the millennial kingdom where he will physically reign and, and, and believers who have died will, will raise from the dead. They will reign with him physically on the earth for a literal 1,000 years, okay? There you go. Now, how does this help us with chapter 20? See, when you look at chapter 20, if it's a premillennial view, you go, this is just what's next. If it's not that view, uh, an, an amill or a post-mill position would say chapter 20 here is looking back to what happened in chapter 19 and it's showing us the same thing from a different angle. Okay, so uh, hopefully that helps us. Now, as we walk through it today, okay, now I can't, um, I can't preach this and just honor every position all the way through. So just deal with it, <laughs> okay? Um, and, and, and so I'm gonna do my best to honor the different positions, uh, but I'm, I'm gonna probably, well, I am, I'm gonna take it to a more historical premillennial view <laughs> because that's my view <laughs> and I'm preaching. So um, some of you are like, oh my goodness, he shared that. But, uh, but what it helps us at least do, I believe, is it helps us to logically at least walk through this since we're doing this in a verse by verse way. Okay, so, so that's what we're looking at. And what we see here as we go back to the text is Christ has returned, he's defeated evil. And then John says, now I see this angel coming down from heaven. So John sees this angel coming down from heaven. This angel has a key uh, to the abyss, it says. Now, uh, throughout the book of Revelation, the abyss or the pit is always in reference to the temporary place of holding or incarceration for certain demons, okay? So it's, it's not their final punishment, their final resting place, which is the lake of fire, but it's a, it's a temporary place of torment that demons fear being sent to. In fact, in Luke chapter eight, as Jesus is casting out demons, they plead with him, don't send us there. Don't send us there. And so this angel also has in his hand a great chain that he uses on Satan and bounds him, it says, for 1,000 years and throws him into the abyss. He closes it and he seals it. Okay, now once again, your position either says this is now going to happen or it's currently happening now. But we see that um, in light of this, Satan's activity and his presence on earth is stopped for the entire millennium. And then only after the millennium is finished is he released for only a short time. Now, John, uh, the writer, he provides only this brief description of the activity that's going on during this millennial kingdom uh, in these verses. 
And, and there's additional insights all throughout uh, the prophets. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, Jeremiah 31, uh, Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9. There's, there's all kinds of scripture and, and prophetic scripture that, that, that speaks to what many believe is this time frame. But what does John specifically see? John sees thrones and he sees people seated on them who were given, it says, authority to judge. Uh, in, in, in Matthew chapter 19, 28, uh, we, we go to Jesus's words as he's talking to the 12. He says, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and we see the same language uh, earlier in the book of Revelation as well. In, in Revelation chapter two, uh, verse 26, it says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him, I will give authority over the nations. So he's speaking to uh, Jesus followers that, that they're going to have authority over the nations. And then in Revelation 5, 10, it says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, so what's your takeaway here? Well, either way, however you interpret it, based upon your position, whether this reign is heavenly or if it's physically present on the earth, it's really good to be a believer. Amen? Right? I mean, come on. I mean, either way, either way, you are brought in with a perfect and holy God. And, and, and I just, I, I love this picture, you guys. And so often we get so caught up on the positions that we lose sight of what he is telling us and the invitation here. And then John says, man, then I saw these martyred saints, those who had been executed because of their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. And he sees that they're now being rewarded for their faithfulness and they are gloriously resurrected. In other words, they come back to, to life and they join in on this and they're given the privilege of reigning with Christ as co-heirs for the thousand years. You guys, this is such an important piece and, and, and I just love it. Uh, and, and Romans 8, 17 talks about it uh, when, when it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see what scripture is saying? So Jesus, not only does he love you, not only did, did Jesus come pay the penalty for your, for my sins and invite you into his family, adopt you in, make a way for you to receive salvation. But do you see what he's saying here? He promises that not only that, you're going to be a co-heir with me. You're going to be a co-heir. It's incredible. It just speaks once again to how much our savior loves you. And, and, and John calls this what? He says, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead, the, the unbelieving, uh, the, the people that are unbelieving, uh, they aren't resurrected, it says, until after the millennium. But the believers are called both blessed and holy since they are able to participate in the first resurrection. And because of that, the second death, which is eternal death, has no power over them. Yeah, I was like, if someone doesn't say amen, we got problems in the room. 
And, and we see that they're gonna be priests uh, of God and, and of the Messiah during the millennium. They're gonna reign with him for a thousand years. And as we read historically as to what the millennial time could be like, we see that politically, socially, uh, it's all gonna be under the universal rule of Christ and his saints. It will be an incredible time spiritually. Um, it, 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 it's, it's the fulfillment of the perfect ruler. Uh, if it is that literal physical presence on the earth. We see that the remnant of Israel is going to be converted, that the nation is going to be uh, restored to the land of God promised to Abraham. Uh, Romans eleven twenty six. 26, it says, and, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from uh, Jacob, okay? So, so one of the issues when it comes to your view on the millennium is what do you do with Israel? Okay, and, and the difficulty is you do see the church, and actually in Romans 11, talks about the church is, is grafted like a branch, like an olive branch. It's grafted into the promises, but then you see later how Israel is still this distinct thing. And so it's really, it makes it really tricky to interpret it. But we see during this time, Gentiles are gonna join in on the worship of the king. And it's gonna be a time marked by peace and, and joy, physical Physically, this curse uh, that's on humanity is lifted. And, and, and so everyone, based upon what we're reading, is going to enjoy the rule and the reign of King Jesus. But then in verse seven, it says this. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Happy Mother's Day. Okay. <laughs> You get in the car. How was it? Was it so good? Ah, it was awful. <laughs> so we look at this, and, and, and once again, based upon where you land on the, on the position, you're either looking at this as, as the next event, or John is showing us what already happened in chapter 19. But we look at this, and let's just take it like it is the next event here. I don't know about you, but it's pretty impossible for me to read this and not ask, why in the world does God give Satan another chance? Right? If you didn't read that and think that, you need to start reading differently. <laughs> like we should ask that question. Why in the world did you give him another chance? And I think there's a couple things happening here. One is God wants us to see that even though there's been this time period where Satan's had to really process his decisions, Satan is eternally evil. He's eternally evil. It's a forever kind of evil. Secondly, he wants to reveal to us that even in a new environment, how many times do we just say, if I just had a new environment, a better environment, if I just move to a different place, right? So, so what he's showing us here is in spite of a new uh, environment, a, a, a perfect environment, and, and a perfect ruler, right? I mean, how many times, uh, like, are we like, if we just had a different leader, 
whether it's locally, whether it's, uh, whether it's our country. Man, if we just had a, a new leader, right? And what God is showing us is humanity at its core, even with a brand new set of circumstances. I mean, we're talking like a utopian, right? Uh, incredible, perfect time and place and the perfect king, even with all of that, humanity will still choose to rebel. Which honestly brings you right back to the garden, doesn't it? Because we read the garden in the book of Genesis and we go, what are you doing? How? And we see that this is in all of us. And so once again, throughout this millennial reign, if it's speaking to a literal reign, the people that were still alive when Christ came back, they will have the opportunity to multiply, to have kids. And we will see over the course of a thousand years, people having the choice to receive Jesus or not. And outwardly, they're going to appear like they are. But based upon what happens next, we know that internally what's going on is humanity is, is still struggling with this sin issue. And many are going to follow Satan as he's released. And it says he deceives the nations and gathers this great army of these people to go to war against the Lord. And it's referred to as Gog and Magog. And that's just a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it just refers to the, 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 the enemies of God among the nations of the world. And so they gather together, they march towards the holy city, city of Jerusalem, where the king is reigning. And immediately we see just like the image of, of, of chapter 19 and how it wasn't really a battle. We see the same imagery here, where in a moment it is absolutely over, fire consumes uh, them and the battle is done. It's done. Satan finally receives justice. He's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are to be tormented, it says, day and night forever and ever. Yes, right? Like, what is he gonna say? Yes, praise God. I mean, finally, he's done. Now, here is what this eliminates for you and I. Guys, we speak like good and evil, like there is some kind of rivalry out there. Like they're in competition. Guys, there is no rivalry. There is no competition. It is an absolute promise and guarantee of victory through the finished work of Jesus. Like it's a victory. Okay, so he's telling us, this is revelation. It's revealing to us what's to come. God loves you so much. He wants you to know that in spite of the evil that you've experienced, uh, the evil that's been done to you, been done to your family, uh, the, the lies, the, the different things that people have done to hurt you and all of those things. And those things are evil. But what God wants you to see here is I'm gonna deal with that forever. And there is victory in me. There is victory only through me. And however evil you may feel things are, or those people are towards you at the end of the day, by the authority of God's word, he wins. And, 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 and not only does he win, but Satan is forever defeated forever. It's done. Okay. 
And so that is something that you and I, man, we need to claim, we need to hold on to, and need to, we need to walk with that same posture now as we move forward out of this place. And then we get to verse 11 and it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So one of the things that I see happening more and more just in in Christian culture, and I think some of it is because of some of our past or history or how hell has been taught. But what I see trending is we don't talk about hell anymore. In fact, we read it and we go, ooh, we push it aside. We don't want to give it time in our mind, in our heart. We definitely don't want to talk about it with our kids, with our friends, and so, and so it's, it's missing, right? It, it's missing in our churches. Pastors are like, man, let's not, ugh, let's not go there. And, and I started processing and thinking about this. And man, I go, man, like 18 years ago, um, man, I know as a posture uh, that I had as a pastor, was like, man, how do I just soften hell so that they'll receive Jesus? So, I, so, so I'd be like, and then there's, there's hell. And then, but man, Jesus comes and, and, and this is what Jesus brings and offers. And, and, and it was just like, man, I just, uh, you know, how do I just soften that reality? And I think so many of us, we do the same thing. And now I go, wait a second. I can't do that. I can't. I mean, it's like going to the doctors and, and there's a serious problem and, and the doctor just kind of tells you a hopeful message and you leave and you find out that's not at all what's going on with your body. How do you feel about that? You feel deceived. Because there's a lot of people that say they're Christians that are deceived right now. And there's, and, there's, and, and there's so many people that just don't even know uh, because we were like, man, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to address it. And, and I've just gotten to the point now where it's like, no, I, I have to talk about this. This matters. You guys, we, we're always like, oh, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about uh, his message. I want to talk about what he said, the things he did. Guys, you need to know this right now. The word for the lake of fire, hell, is Gehenna, and it's used 12 times in the New Testament. Guess what? 11 of those times, it's Jesus. Jesus spoke about hell more than any other speaker in our Bibles. And so why do we need to talk about it? Because Jesus taught it. He taught it and, 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 and he told his followers, he said, you need to be afraid of going there. He told them that that should fear you. 
And he claimed that only God has the power to send someone to that place. And, and, and he used words to describe it so they would understand like, like lake of fire, a place of, of fire, a darkness, isolation away from a perfect and holy God. All of those things were used that Jesus taught when he said hell. And so man, why do we need to address and, and, and not avoid, neglect it, but actually speak to it? Um, because Jesus did. Jesus taught it. He believed in hell. And how do I know that? He believed in it because of the cross. See, you guys, the coming of Jesus into a fallen world and what he did on the cross for you and for me testifies that there's a hell. Why in the world did he come? For the very purpose of saving us. You guys, if, if hell's not real, what, why would he come if we didn't need to be saved? And so I know that hell is real. I know that I have to address this because a perfect and holy God sent his one and only son to come and pay the penalty so that you and I would not have to go there. Remember, he created hell for Satan and the demons. And Jesus came to actually save us from that. And then Jesus went to the cross for you and for me to pay that penalty so that that was not a thing that we had to carry anymore. So that now we are judged as righteous and holy. We don't stand condemned anymore because of Jesus. And so you guys, how do I know hell is real? Because Jesus came and died on the cross for you and for me to save us from it. So the next question though is, well, why would God punish people forever for such a finite offense? That's how it feels. Just seems unjust. Well, first, sin against God is far more serious than I think most of us imagine. In fact, one theologian wrote, sin is an act of insurrection against an infinitely worthy and holy sovereign. It's a repeated slap to the face of the king of the universe. So I think one of our issues is uh, we, we look at sin and honestly, in, in, if I was Satan, I would do the same thing. Satan has made sin entertaining. We laugh at it. We, we, we ignore it. We're okay with it. We tolerate it. All these things that we're just like, oh, whatever, whatever, you know? And, 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 and yet we don't understand the seriousness of it. We don't understand uh, how awful it is. And then second, um, when we think about uh, hell, and I love how Russell Moore says this. He says, hell is the final handing over of the rebel to who he wants to be. And it is awful. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. We must not imagine that the damned displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. Instead, in hell, one is now handed over to the full display of his nature apart from grace. And his nature is seen to be satanic. The condemnation continues forever and ever because the sin does too. See, it's the forever result of their forever desire. 
right? It's the response is, is you, you don't want anything to do with me. No, I don't want you in my life. I wanna live for me. This is my life, God. I don't like that. I don't like how you do that. I don't think Jesus is the only way. So I choose me. That's an eternal decision. And so he's gonna eternally give you what you want. But we see following this millennial kingdom and the final defeat of Satan, John sees another vision. He sees this vision of this great white throne, the place of final eternal judgment. And, 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 and so we see that even though God the Father uh, and and Jesus share the heavenly throne. Scripture tells us that uh, it's Jesus who's gonna oversee this event. In John chapter five, verse 22, it says, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So humanity, those who have rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're all gonna stand before Jesus from what we see at this great white throne. And, and it even says that the earth and the heavens are gonna flee from this moment which is just crazy. In fact, Isaiah 51 uses similar image, imagery. But, but we see that all those who died apart from Christ, they're gonna stand before God at this great white throne and he is gonna show no partiality. There's gonna be no favorites. Well, I liked you, didn't really like you. No, he's gonna judge every single person equally. By his nature, he's impartial. And then John says, I see these books being opened. And what are these books? These are the books uh, of the works which contain every action, thought, uh, emotion of people who have rejected Christ. And, and, and so they are going to be held accountable and judged for every single thing they thought or they did. And we, and we see this uh, all throughout scripture. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Luke 8, 17, it says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known to, and come to light. And in Matthew 16, he says, I'm gonna come back and repay everyone according to what they have done. So absolutely everything is gonna be revealed before this perfect and holy God. No one escapes this. It says the sea gives up its dead. Those that had died that were unbelievers. Death, which claims the body scripturally gives up its dead. Hades, which claims the soul, it gives up its dead. And with resurrected bodies, every single person will be judged fairly and equally. And you guys, what you need to know is yes, those that have rejected him are gonna be thrown into the lake of fire, but we also see that there's gonna be varying degrees of punishment and suffering. How do I know this? Well, Jesus said it over and over again. Jesus, Jesus spoke specifically to the scribes and, he, and, and, and as he's calling them out, he's like, it's gonna be better for those people and those uh, at the end than it is gonna be for you. They, they would go into different cities and Jesus would say, um, like, like, listen, if I had done these same miracles to them, they would have believed. And so it's gonna be worse for you than it was for them. So he speaks to, uh, like, literally, it's not just like, oh, all of you go in. Like, no, everyone's held accountable for what they've done, what they've said, what they've uh, thought. And, and, and you guys, either way, why is it so awful? Because God isn't there. Because at the end of the day, with all of the imagery, 
Hell is what it is because God is not there. And, and so we see this, this body and soul joined together. The, the people that are, are brought, are, are resurrected for this, and then they're cast into uh, hell, the lake of fire. And it says, this is the second death. It's spiritual. It's eternal death, permanent separation from a perfect and holy God. And it says their names are not in the book of life. And so they are judged. You guys, what you see here is there's no universal salvation. There's no, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Now there's no second chance. And there's also no just annihilation. I'm just going to kill all of you. Guys, this is the eternal punishment that Jesus mentioned over and over again. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then a few verses later in verse 46, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You guys, Hebrews 9 tells us it is appointed once for a person to die and then judgment will happen. And so you guys, every single one of us are gonna face this. Every single one of us have this reality that is, is, is staring at us. This day is coming. It's going to be impossible to uh, avoid for those that reject Jesus. And so one of the things that, that we need to just understand and take away from today is we need to think more often about this. We need to stop neglecting it. We need to stop ignoring it. We need to start dealing with it. And, and I love how Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, think lightly of hell and you will soon think lightly of the cross. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe this whole concept of hell has just been beaten on you. Maybe it was done in the wrong way. Maybe it was just absolutely scary to death as a child to make some kind of emotional decision. L listen, I I'm sorry that happened to you, but I also cannot sugarcoat the reality of what God's word tells us because I'll tell you one thing. Um, there, are, there are not words in the human language to describe the glory of heaven. And you just wait till next week. You can, you can do it. Next week, and the week after, as we describe what believers are brought into. But there also, there just aren't the words to describe the horrors of hell. And so we, as Christians, we should use this revelation. I mean, this is revelation. God is revealing to us. He's saying, you're gonna be blessed if you listen to these words, if you respond, if you believe this, if you put this into action, you will be blessed. And so he loves us so much. He says, this is what's gonna come. And so you need to hear it. You need to receive it. And, and, and I'll tell you one thing that, that has to happen for you and I, if you're a Jesus follower in this room, is this should motivate you like nothing else towards evangelism. If you have just neglected that, this should reignite that. I mean, so, so many of us, this has just become normal. And we, and we stopped allowing it to sink in and motivating us and, and inspiring us to do something, knowing that, that, that our time here is limited. And guys, for whatever reason, we've started to care more 
about what our friends, what our family, what these people are going to think. And you guys, I've just gotten to the place in my life where I'm like, I'm done. Like, I, I don't know. I heard something where when you're in your 20s, everybody, you think everybody's thinking about you and you care about it. When you hit your 40s, you don't care what anyone thinks. So, uh, and then in your 60s, you realize no one cared anyway. But um, I don't know if it's just age or what, but I, I'll tell you what. Maybe 18 years ago, I would have tried to sugarcoat this. I can't. I just can't. I can't. I have to tell you the truth. I pray it's with love, but you guys, over the years, I have seen the results of not. I, I, I've seen loved ones. I've lost loved ones. I've lost my best friend. And, and I've carried that burden, that weight of not presenting the gospel with urgency, with pretending I had time, with pretending there were gonna be more moments and all of that. And so, and so listen, this is no longer an option for me. I don't look at hell and, and go, okay, God, how do I soften this for Ecclesia and all those watching online? How do I get them to just love you through this? No, you guys, the reality is, is, is this. God loves you so much already that he sent Jesus to save you. But, but I, have to, I have to tell you, what he's saving you from. And you have to know, and, and because I care deeply that you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the whole purpose of this, is to motivate us and inspire us to live with urgency for Jesus Christ. And so if you're right now rejecting Jesus, if you're right now saying that's not for me, I don't want anything to do with that, or I'm just, you know, I'm just confused and I'm gonna sit in that confusion, I would plead with you to do something. Because this is a reality. You guys, people ask me all the time, what's hell, you know, what? Man, it seems like it's getting worse. And I will say this, the more God is removed from our lives and from our culture, the more of a reality hell becomes. Because ultimately that is what hell is, is the complete removal of God. And guys, here's the beauty of this message on Mother's Day. <laughs> Guys, you have time right now. You understand? You're here. We have time. Right now, we have time. And God says, here it is. Here's my words to you. You have time. What are you going to do with it? And if it's you need to get your life reignited, get it reignited. Find that passion, whatever it takes. I don't know if you need to do a full study on hell. Whatever it takes to get your passion for Christ and the gospel reawaken. Do it. Second, if you've never made a decision, I plead with you to surrender your life to a perfect and holy God, to declare with your mouth uh, and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord and Savior and that he went to the cross for your sins, that you can receive him as your Lord and Savior. I plead with you to make that decision. But guys, uh, right now, let's just, Let's really allow this to just sink in. Let's wrestle with this. And let's just ask, God, what are you calling me to this morning? Let's pray.